Raising the Bets is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Raising the Bets. We're a Catholic couple raising five kids outside of Boston. Join us as we share the joys and challenges of marriage, homeschool, and our adventures near and far as we make sense of the world and experience the best parts of our culture. I'm Don Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. So, Melanie, uh, this week we had a few things that we did. I want to get right into it. Uh, My brain is short-circuited for small talk, so let's get right into the stuff in the notes. Um, So, you took the kids on a field trip this week. I did. Your sister invited us to go to the Lexington Symphony. Uh, They had a children's program, mostly for school kids, but they also allowed homeschoolers to sign up. And uh, her homeschooling group was going, and we joined them. Lexington is about midway between their house and ours. Revolutionary War Lexington, not the horse Lexington. Right. (laughs) Lexington, Massachusetts. Yes. Uh, So they had a kids program. It was which was a sort of introductory introduction to the symphony. And uh, this one was, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was arranged around a Star Wars, not theme, but... They wanted to show how symphony progressed through history to get to the type of right. musical group that Star plays Wars. Star Wars. Right. Star Wars was the hook. Yes. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, so Star Wars was the hook. So the, the orchestra is on stage when, as everyone's sitting sitting down, and the conductor comes out. They play just a very short snippet of the Star Wars theme song. And then they stop, and everyone claps, and then the orchestra gets up and walks off stage. Okay. Um, and so then the conductor kind of talks about, like, why do they, the orchestra leave? And he says, well, we're, we're going to introduce you to the history of the orchestra. Now we want to take you back in time a thousand years. And there was no, there were no orchestras. Um, this was the point where he lost me a little bit in that he kind of implied. Or outright said. Or outright said. <laughs> I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be gracious. Yeah. He said that there were no musical instruments in the Middle Ages. He also said that the Middle Ages were the time of darkness and ignorance and nobody could read. And Wrong. Wrong. <laughs> that's just wrong on so many levels. Yeah. Um, it is true that there were no orchestral <laughs> instruments or people playing instruments in, in an orchestra. orchestral way, like yeah. an ensemble way, but there were certainly musical instruments. The Greeks and Romans had musical instruments, well, people. Did you not see, have you ever seen Robin Hood? What is Will Scarlet playing? He's playing a lute. <laughs> yes, they had they had lutes and harps. They had flutes. They had drums. There were musical instruments in the Middle Ages. It's a good thing I wasn't there. I would have yelled out, wrong! <laughs> um, so, but they, 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 so they, they began with monks doing plain chant, which was actually kind of nice. They were chanting the, the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria. Not real monks, but people dressed up. People, not real monks, yes. Yeah. People dressed up as monks. Um, and then they did, like, sort of the introduction to, first of all, we had the recorders, and then we had the brass instruments, and we talked a little bit about like old ancient woodwinds. They didn't actually, unfortunately, have any historical musical instruments, which would have made it a hundred times more cooler. Like they didn't have um, lutes or lutes or shams or like the 
kinds of musical instruments that they actually played in the Middle Ages. So it was sort of like, imagine and pretend that these brass musical instruments are their ancestors, like right. the ancestor of the French horn that didn't have all the curly bits in the middle sort of thing. Um Nonetheless, they sort of walked you through history and they played for, for each instrument they introduced or group of instruments they introduced. They played a little bit of music, which period music, which was nice. So we started off with some uh, Monteverde. And then, anyway, we, we went through like the big name composers, you know, Bach, Bach Beethoven, Beethoven, Mozart, Mozart, <laughs> etc. Um, and they played very small selections from each one, and they introduced each instrument that like was added to the orchestra. And we ended with um, Vivaldi, Stravinsky, Stravinsky, and then finally we got to John Williams. Right. And when they got to John Williams again, they played the Star Wars theme again, and Darth Vader came out with a lightsaber. You know, an orchestra member dressed in a Darth Vader mask and cape. Not the real Darth Vader. That the real Darth what a chip. And <laughs> um, I mean, it was a good hook. Our kids definitely liked the Star Wars bits. Which ones um, didn't? Yeah. And when, in fact, in fact, when they introduced the um, piccolo clarinet, I think uh, that. Um, musician played a snippet from the cantina theme which was cool oh cool <laughs> yes exactly yeah uh because we're bopping along to that they're like "Ooh, even more star wars <laughs> uh, it was a good program it was just almost exactly an hour so it was definitely tailored for short attention spans when i was a kid fourth or fifth grade this seems to that seems to be about the age they yes. aim at when they do this the the boston symphony orchestra also has a program where they bring school kids in they fill the symphony hall with school kids and they you know they have the um orchestra play stuff it was much longer program if you're gonna bus kids into the city you're gonna give them a full day's worth of stuff um so it wasn't maybe a full day but like there was several hours worth of music i remember that and it it made a huge impression and it frankly it's brilliant because where are your future classical music fans going to be the people who are going to be subscribing to your season right. in 40 years if you don't get them now and, and musicians too they really right. pressed hard on the if you see any instruments that you think are cool talk to your music teacher and right. join the orchestra and learn how to play and they had one soloist who was i would say maybe a a young teen uh-huh um she was a violin solo soloist and she played i can't even remember which bit I think um, I saw a video of that. Um, she was very good. And yeah. uh, so that was nice. Like the sort of the look young, like most of the musicians are old folks like me, but there are young, there are young musicians who play with symphonies right. and you could be here too. sort of idea. Yeah. Um, it was good. We enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was very in initially very loud when we first got there and a thousand school kids were all talking at once. Right. Any assembly. Like our kids who are not used to school assemblies or anything like that. No, they were just like kind of shocked at the noise. <laughs> like it was like a wall of noise and they were kind of wilting. Uh, Sophie's hood hood on her hoodie was up. Yes. You, you could, it's like the hood is an indicator. It's of a barometer. Emo, it's an emotional barometer. And as the program went on, the hood came the hood off. Came the hood more came down. Yes. <laughs> By the middle of it, the hood was off completely. Yes. That's good. <laughs> so that was fun. Yeah. My sister was sending photos because she was sitting behind you guys and she kept sending photos of and videos of, of it to me while I was working. So that's that's cool. Awesome. 
It's, uh, I'm sorry I missed it, but it sounds like it was fun, and uh, I'm glad they everyone got a chance to do that. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had. I mean, I, they've never actually done any anything with live orchestral music. Like they've never seen any right. Well, any live orchestral program. Did Bella see it as a little one at the Fourth of July in Salem? Oh, maybe when she was an infant. Maybe an infant. Okay. Because I remember like uh, her cousins, Kateri and Kara, being no, little. If, if we went with Bella at all, it was like when she was a when, baby. When we lived in Salem. Right. That was always awesome. Salem has an, well, they have a local orchestra, like pop orchestra, that um, they would have their own 4th of July celebrations down on the waterfront and with fireworks and stuff. And it was, gosh, Salem, I mean, for all of the, for all of the, bizarre like witch halloween nonsense that goes on in salem there's so much good community stuff that happens there so i just i, I kind of miss that i miss mm-hmm. the that the cool stuff of, of salem like that so uh for me this week the, the 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 thing that i got to do was i went scout camping with lucy so lucy is a weeblo she's a cub scout um, she's got another year before she moves up to BSA scouts. Um, you know, she's 10. So, uh, the pack, her pack had a camping trip, a weekend where the they're, they're trying to catch up. They're trying to get, do as many of the requirements, the rank requirements so they can get all the kids to up to the next rank. And so they kind of plan this weekend to catch up on a lot of that stuff. And so, um, the, Half the kids, well, a bunch of kids went Friday and Saturday night. Then the the Arrow of Light kids, which is the year ahead of Lucy, they went Friday night. And then Saturday morning, our Dan, like Lucy and other kids her age, came Saturday morning and stayed overnight to Sunday. And so they kind of were there all day. There wasn't enough room in the, we stayed in a cabin at uh, Camp Squanto, which is the local scout camp. Um, and there wasn't enough room in the cabin for all of us to stay two nights, basically, because all the parents had to be there as well. So, uh, but it was good. We we got there Saturday morning. We got up nice and early Saturday. Uh, Lucy was a little trepidatious at first on Friday, but going. But when we I got her up on Saturday, she was raring to go. She was very excited. Uh, ben and Anthony, especially Ben, were sad to see her go. And they're like, have a good time. We're going to miss you so much. It's like, it's literally 24 hours. Like, we'll <laughs> see her again in 24 hours. Um, so we got up with, um, we had to go get out early. So we were up with the sun. It was a, We had the sunrise. And it was fun. I, I like spending time with just me and Sophie, uh, Lucy. <laughs> I did that all weekend. I, I, I just can't help it. But I mixed it, those two names. Anyway, um, we stopped at the Dunkin' Donuts over in Weymouth, the only Dunkin' Donuts that makes its own donuts on premises. Oh, yes. were the donuts better? Yeah. Uh, well, I didn't have a donut. I was trying to be good, but oh. Lucy really liked her Boston cream. Mm, I like so. Boston creams. <laughs> so uh, I should have got a donut, but well, they didn't have the glaze stick, and I really liked the glaze stick. They had a plain stick, and they had jelly stick and the lemon stick, which is the benefit of making them on on premises is they can make a lot more varieties lemon stick i've never had one of those that sounds good (laughs) Mm, i love lemon i i yeah a little tip dunkin donuts you get more bang for your buck you get more donut with the stick than with the regular shaped donut like there's more more stuff yeah like by weight you know by volume Uh uh-huh you're paying the same but you're getting more donut 
it's a little trick I learned. So, um, yeah, but they don't have Boston cream sticks. No, that would be weird. <laughs> that's that's called an eclair. <laughs> that's true, actually. That would be an eclair. That would be an eclair. But so basically, a Boston cream donut is just a round eclair. Uh, yes, it is. Mind blown. mind blown. <laughs> so the, we, the French are the French are now horrified. <laughs> Ooh la la! The, you call them the French. <laughs> that is a reference to the Associated Press style book, which tweeted out this week that we should never no longer journalists. There was really there was a journalistic thing should should refer to groups of people as the blank, the poor, the mentally ill, the homeless, or the French, which. The I, the favorite reaction to that was the French embassy to the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, tweeted out, um, this is news to us. We are changing our bio. And the bio on Twitter says, uh, representatives of Frenchiness to the United States. <laughs> Frenchiness. Frenchiness. It was awesome. Um, yeah. So backtrack back to donuts so we got donuts and she got a hot cocoa i got my coffee because i really needed that coffee and we headed down i got a bagel sandwich a bagel leg sandwich uh we got down there and we had second breakfast because dan the scout cub master was out there making pancakes and bacon lots and lots one one thing about scouts is there's always plenty of food that's like that is like a rule there must always be lots of food you, no one should ever go hungry. Although, though I think there have been a couple of camping trips where there was a little bit of a fa- planning right. failure. So that is because they're trying to train the patrols to the patrols are supposed to feed themselves. And they're trying to train the patrols to make sure like they're feeding themselves so that they're they've they've shifted for a while. It was the adults, prov- you know, providing for that when it was really small. And the kids were really young, but the kids are old enough now they can start to do it for themselves. And so that's the ideas they're trying to teach them. So but there should always be plenty of food. So there was pancakes and bacon and and uh, eggs and so second breakfast. Then um, I hung up by the fire. had to keep that going. Of course, somebody needs to tend the fire, tend the fire, read my book and uh, keep my feet warm. And so. Uh, the they all went off to do a couple of different things. They did ropes and they did a whole bunch of stuff around the camp. And um, then they came back. We had lunch was foil packets, which was kind of fun. Although Lucy's poor Lucy, her foil packet took like forever to heat up. It was all pre-cooked food, like it had pre-cooked chicken and, and like frozen vegetables and other stuff like that. And just for whatever reason, like her vegetables, like just they must her her packet must have been like on the edge of the fire like her her stuff just didn't cook and she was like oh everyone else is done and she, we're still waiting for hers to actually a couple other kids had to um make new ones because there's burnt on the inside so uh but it was okay and then uh afterward we were gonna go for a, a hike a hike quote unquote uh, you know they were all between the ages of eight and 10, you know, it's not like it was a, a long hike. It was like a mile. But before that, we had this presentation. And this is what I really wanted to talk about, because this was one of the best things I've seen in Scouts. So this uh, this this really nice gentleman, his name is Ed Levine, and he's a retired member, volunteer member of the Central Massachusetts Search and Rescue Team. They are that's the official 
search and rescue team in Massachusetts is a hundred, I think you said 150 civilians who volunteer, you know, the call goes out, there's a missing person. We, we, we need you to come and And they've done all kinds of things. He said they once, he recently did one where um, some farm workers had gone missing five years ago mm-hmm. and they went to the fields and did this grid search and found their bodies, their skeletons five years later. That's creepy. Yeah, he didn't talk too much about that. Yeah. <laughs> he kind of realized maybe maybe less detail. So, um, but the program is called, he, he presented this program called Hug a Tree and Survive. And it, it's not about like, you know, hug a tree as in I'm a tree hugger, save the trees. It's not an environmental message. It, it started in San Diego after a search for a nine-year-old boy who died in the, in the mountains, the local mountains and a group of the search and rescue search and rescuers, uh, they put together this program for kids on how not to get lost, how to stay comfortable if they do get lost and how to be spotted and found. Because the, the, the worst thing for a search and rescuer has got to be finding a child who didn't make it. Yes, exactly. So their, their goal is to make it as easy as possible for kids to be found. Right. They're they're not expecting kids to rescue themselves. And so one of the first things is he says is when you when you you're out and you're lost or you think you're lost when when the the day gets to four o'clock, if you have a watch, if you don't. But, you know, as the sun starts to go down, you need to make a decision. Am I am I walking out of here or am I my lost? If you're lost, then what you do is you hug a tree, basically pick a tree. And stick with it. And, you know, so th- I'm going to have a link to this program and you can look it up for yourself. It says, uh, but this web page and it says one of the greatest fears anyone can have is being alone. So hugging a tree or other stationary object and even talking to it calms the child down and prevents panic by staying in one place. The child if found by cert- is found by searchers far more quickly and can't be injured in a fall or other accident. Stay put. Right. And this goes for it, even like in urban or suburban locations if you're lost in the in the mall find a bench hug a bench like sit on it just stay there okay um so number two always carry a trash bag and a whistle whether you're on a picnic a hike or a camping trip you should always have it like in your bag he also he also said water you should yes and we never no one ever carries enough water you should have three liters of water and you should drink every 15 minutes, whether you're thirsty or not. As soon as you think you're thirsty, you've, you're already starting to dehydrate. So when you're out, you should be drinking every 15 minutes. Three liters of water, drinking every 15 minutes is like, like I think he said, like six hours of water at most. So um, I think it might even be less than that. So, but the, the trash bag. So we recommended one of those big, uh, thick contractor bags, the, the, the yard bags that are really hard to puncture. And he said, you know, for kids, if they're small enough, they can open the bag with the, you know, the seam at the bottom and the hole at the top and step into it and sit down inside it. Don't cover yourself, but gather it around your face and lean back against the tree. So your face is sticking out. You get air, but the bag heats up from your body heat. It will keep you warm. It will also keep rain or snow off of you as well. Um, for bigger kids or adults with the bag, what you do is, is you kind of hold the seam under your chin and right at your sternum, you cut a hole and you don't put your head through it. 
you kind of put the bag over your head so your face is poking out and the seam is above you and you hold your arms inside hugging yourself and then you can kind of you can kind of sit down with it you know and sit on it and cover yourself that way but uh, either way the bag uh keeps you warm prevents hypothermia also a whistle and he talked about the SOS for whistle is three short bursts and stop three short and he said that the search dogs are trained to listen for that so they'll hear it before the the humans hear it so um number 3 my parents won't be angry at me he emphasizes like time and again children have avoided searches because they were ashamed of getting lost and afraid of punishment but anyone can get lost and he mentioned like he is in all the times he's ever brought a children a child home the only thing he's ever seen is joy <laughs> i mean parents will be maybe a little bit angry a little bit upset later but the but 90% is 95% is joy you're okay you're here with me so um that's so they need he emphasized that um make yourself big so from helicopters people are hard to see when they're standing up when they're in a group of trees or wearing dark and drab clothing find your tree to hug near a small clearing if possible so the tree you pick should be near a small clearing and then um when you're out there like put something colorful out or lie down on the ground and spread eagle when the helicopter flies over or um make SOSs using broken sticks or rocks or whatever but do whatever you do make this big sign that you're there um then he emphasized there are wild animals in the in the wilderness but they're more afraid of you than 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 you are of them uh, they don't like you. You smell and you taste funny <laughs> and you're noisy. Uh, and he says, um, if you hear a noise at night, yell at it. If it's an animal, it'll run away to protect itself. If it's a searcher, you'll be found. Uh, fears of the dark and of lions and tigers and bears are a big factor in panicking children into running. Don't run, especially right. in the dark. Um, he talked about. You have hundreds of friends looking for you. When a search goes out, he talked about the first thing that happens, you call parents call 911. The police set up a hasty search, which they show up and a half a dozen of them will look in, a, in the area. In the meanwhile, the state police are activating the search and rescue team. Hundreds of searchers are on their way, police and civilians, and they can have, you know, drones, helicopters, all kinds of things there in a matter of hours looking for you. So, and he talked about how with the animal, like the search dog finds you, he will come right up to you, but he won't touch you until you give him permission by touching him or hugging him. And then he'll slobber all over you. <laughs> and um, so uh, he talked about if the kids have a cell phone and it has a signal, what they should do is they should call their parents, then call 911. And then put the phone into low power mode. So you should teach your kids how to do low power mode and then leave it on, not, not the call active, but just leave it on, on your person. Don't put it down. Don't put it in a bag because they'll, they'll triangulate on that phone signal. So they'll go to where the phone is expecting you to be there. So I mentioned, I don't know if I mentioned before that I got these GMRS radios. These are um, a step up from the family radios, those cheap ones that can reach about a quarter mile. And these go like three to six kilometers. And I got six of them for our family. And I asked them, can you ping these? Like, yes. 
these are excellent. This is, you should definitely have these um, to get your kids to turn them on if they get lost. You let, and then as soon as, you know, if, if, you, if your child is lost, tell us that the child has this, we will start triangulating on it. So, and then he talked about footprinting your child. So one of the things that helps them to find the child is they need to know exactly what they were wearing when they got lost. So my idea is every time we go for a hike or go camping, take a picture of our children, like just take a, a photo of the child, what they're wearing at that, at that time. But he says, get some aluminum foil, bring it with you to, to your hike or your camp, lay out a, you know, a, a few feet of it on a soft surface, like carpeting or folded towel or grass, and then have the child walk across it wearing the shoes that they're going to be wearing that day. What that tells gives them is the trackers will have an impression of their shoe, so they know what to look for, and the the length of their stride, their gait, so that they know when they're out there, they can say, okay, this is their gait. If they're moving, this is how far they will have gone. Um, and then what you do is you take it, you carefully fold it up, between the footprints and write the child's name on it. And then he said to like, leave it in the car. If you leave, you know, when you go, so leave it like, he's like, leave it in the back window. I'm like aluminum foil in the back window, probably a bad idea that <laughs> heat up your, your dash. I like leave it on the seat or something, but someplace visible in case you all go missing, they can find it there. So, um, it was really good. And he said some additional things, try to keep them from getting lost in the first place, which is probably impossible. You know, keep an eye on them. Kids are easily distracted and run off the trail, teach them to stay on the trail, teach them to use the buddy system. Never go alone. Um, admit to yourself when you become lost and we could, any of us could become lost. Right. Don't, he said, don't wait. If your child is lost, don't, like feel like I shouldn't, I can't call until I've exhausted all possibilities. Call the police right away. <laughs> Ask them for help. Um, and then be available for interviewings. Like a lot of times, like the dad's like, I'm going to go find my child and rushes off into the woods. Like, no, stay put. You need to, the, the, the searchers need to talk to you. They need to ask you questions about your child. So it was all of the parents who were there were really like, this is one of the best things we've ever, we've ever seen. And by the end of it, he's repeated hug a tree and survived so often that all the kids were, you know, chanting it back with him and that sort of thing. And it was such a great program. Everybody should do this. Anybody who goes outdoors with kids really should have this for their wow, family. Yeah. And I've never heard of this program before. Yeah. My first time. And I've been, you know, in scouting for, <laughs> for a long time, you know, and uh, this is the first time I've been hearing about it. So it's, yeah, it is a really awesome thing. Again, I will put a link to a web page in the show notes on uh, sqpn.com slash bets, where you can see this, the, all of the stuff I just mentioned um, right there. And yeah, do it with your kids, please. I, I like I don't want I don't want any of our listeners kids to go missing. But if you they do, I want to know that your kid was found and found in good health because you did this with with them, because this is really important stuff. So anyway, whew. so uh, after that, we had, uh, you know, uh, we had dinner. We had uh, we went for a little bit of a hike. Kids ran off into the woods. <laughs> they didn't go far, but it was, you know, they're they're. A lot of, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old boys. Um, we did go to the um, 
scouting museum. The camp has a scouting museum inside. It was really cool. There was like stuff from a hundred years ago of memorabilia. One of the things I really was looking at was like the old scout uniforms. Uh huh. I really wish they'd still did the campaign hats. You know, the Smokey the Bear hats. Oh, yeah. Those were cool. Those were so cool. <laughs> I wish they did those still. Um, wonder why they stopped. Uh, practicality, probably expensive. You know, back in the 80s, which was the low time for all fashion, you know, but yeah, that those uniforms in the 80s, which were redesigned, I think, by this French designer. Was it? I don't know if it was Yves Saint Laurent or like one of those Lacoste, Isad Lacoste, one of those French designers redid the scout uniform. And that's when they introduced the ball cap and some other stuff like that. Um, uh-huh. Cause kids like ball caps, but yeah, the, the, the campaign hat was cool, but there was, um, they had stuff like, like old Eagle badges and letters from the president at the time. You know, Cause when you get, a, when you earn your Eagle scout, you can get a letter from the president congratulating you. You have to like ask for it or something. Yeah. You have to like this, the scout master or the parents can ask for it, but there's a, it's a standard thing. That's cool. Yeah. Like in the governor and the Senator and stuff like that, you get a whole set of them. Um, so there were, there were some of those in there. There's one from like Richard Nixon or something. There was a memorial to a scout who died in Afghanistan in the, he was a civilian employee of the defense department. Uh-huh. And it told a story about how he was in Kosovo in the nineties and he had to go to this village and this British special forces, the SAS, the special air squadron mm-hmm. had to take him. And they were grumbling over the, having to take this, you know, stupid civilian with them. Uh, who's not special forces. And as they went, the leader of this group, this patrol was very impressed by like, he would know to keep a spare pair of socks inside his shirt to keep them warm and dry and he would every time they would stop he would change his socks and he would you know he did all these things that were like and finally he's like what military branch did you serve in (laughs) and he said boy scouts of america (laughs) and was made an honorary member of the the british sis wow there yeah because they were so impressed by him um and then unfortunately he died in, in Afghanistan and his mom donated a bunch of his scout stuff to be loaned it to the scouting museum. It was really cool. It was, I saw stuff from my old summer camp, camp child, which is gone now. Um, in fact, Lucy saw the picture of the dining hall at camp child. And she said, uh-huh. is that the dining hall you guys ran out of when they were stealing your boat? There's a long story about <laughs> we had a whale boat. My troop did at camp and it was a thing that the other troops were trying to steal it from us at different times. And during dinner when another troop tried to steal it and we all ran out of the dining hall and tackled them into the water as they tried to take it. And we all got in big trouble for running out of the dining hall. So, but, uh, so that, actually not such a long story, I guess. Um, <laughs> so you tell it much longer at dinner. There was a longer version. Um, the other thing I, I just wanted to mention was I, once again, I'm kind of, astounded by the fact that there was these were all mostly new dads dads i hadn't met before uh there's a couple moms there as well um including our dental hygienist which is just a funny story (laughs) um but the dads were all sitting around the campfire you know saturday night i guess or earlier saturday night and we you know talking about sports and you know all kinds of nonsense and eventually it always comes around someone says something political and you always have to tiptoe around it, like, you know, kind of feel each other out. Where do you stand on this stuff? 
and then suddenly everyone realizes, oh, we're all conservative. <laughs> like we're all like non woke, yo, conserv- politically conservative, blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, oh, we're all relaxed with this and we talk about it. And how often, I don't know if it's a, if scouting self selects. I mean, I'm sure that not everyone is conservative. I'm sure there's folks who have liberal, belie- you know, political beliefs, which is fine. It's, I don't care. You mean bring your kid. And it's, this is not, it's about kids. It's not about the adults. But, I wonder if scouting somewhat self-selects for, because this is Massachusetts. <laughs> like the, there's so many, so it's such a blue state. And yet so often when I'm doing anything with scouting, I run into like pe- all these people with very conservative beliefs. And I'm wondering. Well, scouting is a, I mean, it's conser- a traditional conservative well, sort of thing. It's conservative in the like original sense of the word conservative yes. in that it's conserving something. Right. It's a long, there's a long tradition of scouting. It's a very traditional sort of institution. I mean, it's more than a hundred years old. Yes. Right. right. And it, the values that it espouses and stands for tend, or, or, you know, are conservative and traditional and that sort of thing. So I think there's a little bit of that. I think there's also, there's a silent, um, I don't know if it's a majority, a minority in Massachusetts who are, politically socially culturally conservative that kind of get drowned out but that's that's my theory i don't you know i don't know i don't want to get political about everything but i just thought it was interesting to encounter yet another group of dads through scouting who are very similar to me in in these ways i'm also not the oldest dad now i'm always the oldest dad at these things there is this one guy who's uh, older than i am so who's got two sons that are One's Lucy's age and younger. So he's even more of a late bloomer parent than I am. So that was, that was fun. So yeah, that was our weekend. And then we got back and I was exhausted because snoring dads kept me awake. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, we had a very quiet weekend because yeah. everybody got sick. Everybody's got a cold. Yeah. I mean, it's just a mild cold but they're all kind of miserable yeah and dreading it because i've got too much to do very busy too busy Uh, to get sick too busy to get sick you know which means i'll get sick anyway so that's what we've been doing let's talk about what we've been eating uh this week our big new dish was a japanese chicken curry so japanese curry is a thing um curry came from india to japan um so it you know the the whole curry flavor thing, and then it it has a particularly Japanese twist to it, and I don't know where I somebody had been talking about it, and so I decided I wanted to try to make Japanese curry. Was was it a YouTube video or was it Makiba? It was probably Makiba. Makiba is our uh, scout master for the girls' troop, and she's Japanese. She's from Japan, so and her husband Chris, who's not Japanese but cooks Japanese, uh, often cooks Japanese dishes. Um, when we're camping, so which is fun. Um, so I think maybe he even mentioned it. But in any case, I looked up a recipe and I found one. Um, the website's called justonecookbook.com. And she has a recipe based, and she's, I think she's, her mom is from Japan, I, I think is what she says. And so this was her mom's recipe. And she has a recipe where you can make the curry from scratch, but she, she also like, you can buy like in a, in a box, like, uh, curry cubes called uh, G- golden curry is like the, the, the big name brand kind of like bouillon cubes. Yes. They're kind of like bouillon cubes. And so you, you know, you dissolve it in the, 
in the curry um, liquid and put it in. It's a roux. It's essentially it's a curry roux. So I made this recipe. It's got um, chicken thighs, carrots, onions, potatoes, ginger, garlic, an apple, um, and a and the apple was grated, right? A grated apple. Yep. Um, and then the sauce was chicken stock, honey, soy sauce, and ketchup, and then the Japanese curry roux. So the so the soy sauce and ketchup are very Japanese flavors that you wouldn't normally expect in a curry. Right. Well, you wouldn't. Yeah, normally expect ketchup or even honey in a curry. Right. In, a, in an Indian curry. Yeah, Indian curries aren't. They don't have any sweet. Yeah, I mean the butter curry, butter chicken curry is kind of, but those tend to be more westernized curries. Right. And it's also that's just the sweetness of the cream, right? There's not like yeah. sugar or honey or anything. And there's no dairy in this curry. In the Japanese curry. Yeah, there's no yogurt or anything like that. And so, and that's one of the things that makes it distinctively Japanese. It's because Jap- Japanese, they don't do dairy. They don't, most Japanese are lactose intolerant. Right. They don't have the gene for digesting. Um, Whereas Indian, a lot, not every, not uh, that's the generalization. Right. Whereas Indians tend to do a lot of more dairy. Yes. A lot more yogurt. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. So um, what'd you think? I honestly, when you said you were making Japanese curry, and when I when I looked at the recipe, I kind of mentally said, I'm probably going to end up making a sandwich because <laughs> I I was skeptical. And I in fact I had a second serving. It yeah. was good. Um it was different. Like like the it had a very distinctly Indian curry taste. Yes. And it also had a very distinctly Japanese barbecue sort of tastes yeah, to it. Yeah. In fact, if it, it kind of reminded me of like the bulldog sauce, sort of that Japanese That's barbecue what everyone sauce. was trying to do, the, the, the flavor everyone was trying to get that they recognized. Yeah. yeah. So, so it was two very recognizable flavors that I would never, ever have put together. But it worked. I bet they both have tamarind in them, the bulldog sauce and the curry. Possibly. So it was sweet. It's sweeter than Indian curry. Yeah. It, that, it the, the apple and honey really make it sweeter. Right. And, and if you had asked me if I wanted a sweet curry, I would have said no. It's not like dessert sweet. No, no. But it's but it's sweet in the same way that like. I mean, it's not even as sweet as like sweet and sour chicken or something like that. Right. But 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 it has a, a sweetness to it. Yeah. Um, but it was good. Right. I liked it. It didn't taste apple-y. No. <laughs> um, the apple dissolves into it and it just it lends that that note, that sweet note to it. The potatoes, they have you, the recipe has you have them pretty big. You want to use Yukon Gold because you don't want them to dissolve into it. You want to have chunks. But I would have. They were super soft. They were almost dissolved even, yeah. even at that. I, I might have made the chunks a little smaller. The kids kind of balked I, a little bit of the size. I liked the big, gigantic chunks of of. This is this is one of my when I make curry, I make the, the everything small because the kids won't eat it if when it has big chunks in it. Yeah, I kind of like big chunks. So <laughs> hence you married me. Right. <laughs> um. So, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of adapting, you know, finding the, the happy medium between how I like it and how they like it. If I make it again, I might add some bell pepper and mushrooms and reduce the amount of potatoes by one. 
I don't know. I really liked the potatoes. Okay. Because the kids are complaining because, like, I'd give them a scoop and it was, like, all potato. They just felt like it was way too much potato. Like, Sophie felt that way. And so, but Sophie liked it. Um, It wasn't spicy. I got the mild because I wasn't sure how spicy it would be. So, um, I might get the medium next time. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, of course, Bella and Ben had mac and cheese because neither of them like curry at all. Yeah, they do. They're, they're not, not even going to try it. Yeah. If they tried it, they might have liked it. But but it definitely has the cumin, uh, um, turmeric, yeah. tamarind sort of flavor. Coriander. Coriander. Probably. Yeah. So it is. It definitely tastes like curry. So uh, we're talking a lot about it, but it's it's a good recipe. I'll put a link in the show notes and hopefully you'll enjoy that. All right, let's talk about what we've been reading or watching because there's a lot there. Um, can I talk about two things I watched? Okay. So uh, there's a new show on HBO Max that everybody's talking about. It's the new big HBO show called The Last of Us. It's based on a video game from the early 2000s, like 2006, I think someone said, which was hugely popular. I guess I'm out of the loop because I've not heard of it. Okay, yeah, well. Not surprising. Um, <laughs> this is not your sort of circle of, of things. It'll come around. Some of your friends will start talking about, oh, I've heard I started watching Last of Us. Um, OK, but it was a video game that was known for the story it told. And it's it's a zombie story. I'm not big on zombie stories. I never watched. Um, oh, what was that? The Walking Dead. I, I don't find the gory stuff all that fun. I did like World War Z. I like. Like a zombie story that isn't like gory and ugh, gross. Uh, so the premise of this is um, that in 2006 or seven or whatever it is, they, there's a outbreak of a of a fungus. A, a, you remember we did that episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on mind control parasites uh-huh. where a fungus can take control of like these ants and make them do things that propagate the fungus. Right. Well, what if that leapt to humans? So mind control fungus for humans. Right. Uh, with a hive mind, basically, that it, it controls the people. And so the first episode is the outbreak. And Pedro Pascal stars in it. The Mandalorian. Oh, I like pa- Pedro Pascal. He has a career, made a career of playing uh, men protecting children from from things that want to hurt them. Because he's done this, The Mandalorian, and there was like a, there was a Netflix movie that he did, which was the same sort of thing, protecting this young girl in space. It's kind of funny. In any case, so he's really good in this too. So it's, it starts in Austin. This is where the outbreak happens. Well, then I have to watch it. Yes, it's Austin. Well, because then we leap forward twenty years to Boston, where he's now in Boston. So wait, it's like my life story. Austin yes. to Boston and zombies and zombies. Well, yeah, I've had plenty of zombies in my time, right? It's like it's like Pride and Prejudice and zombies. It's Melanie Bettinelli and zombies, um, right? So, and Boston is now a quarantine zone. They have like this. So, someone asked me how how well does it depict Boston? So, one of uh-huh. the things. So, the quarantine zone itself is supposed to encompass. Like they mentioned these different parts of the of the Boston downtown. I'm like. Based on what you're talking about, like the way they describe it, no. <laughs> like, that's not Haymarket. Like, that couldn't be Haymarket based on the things that happened on this episode. Because they leave the quarantine zone at some point, and they have to trek across Boston 
to the state house and they show it. And it, it's kind of creepy because that they, they do, it does look like Boston. They, they're coming up basically looks like the quarantine zone is in either Dorchester or South Boston somewhere. Uh-huh. And they're coming up the expressway and they're crossing through like near South station and like, Oh, that's the federal reserve building. And Oh, that's the state, not state street. There's maybe, you know, the bank, the, the building looks kind of pregnant. It's like got the small base and it kind of flares out and goes up in the financial district. I don't know what you're talking about, but okay. okay. Uh, you'd recognize it. Right. Anyway, that's like collapsed and they, they, then they, they see, um, uh, Quincy Marketplace, they from above, they're like looking down on it and it's like covered in zombies. I'm like, Quincy Market, I'm like, oh, Pizzeria Regina's there. <laughs> Man, they, 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 they put zombies in the Quincy Market. Yes. That's um, kind of crazy. And, um, there's like a Faneuil Hall analog. It's not exactly Faneuil Hall. It's the Boston History Museum, quote unquote. Um, Faneuil Hall has, it's like, is essentially a Boston History Museum. Uh, so, um, and then they end up at the state house and all this stuff. So there's that there's, um, there's a young girl in it who is the actress who was in, she was this actress in game of Thrones and it was very young and people were super impressed by her. Um, I forget what the character's name was, but like, she was like this supposed to be like this, like 11 year old who was super strong and in command like in charge of her great house of the game of Thrones. Uh-huh. And so she's in it. And then Anna Torv, I'm like, I'm looking at like, this actually going, who is that? I do that all the time at shows. Right. right. And so I am DB and it's Anna Torv who played Olivia on fringe. 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 So this was the, um, sort of an X files, show with, um, Anna Torv, Joshua Jackson, Josh Jackson. Oh, I think I remember you watching that. I don't think I actually watched it um, with you. Noble, what's his name? Uh, Denethor from Lord of the Rings. Uh And that was also set in Boston, by the way, which was funny, Um, which really they they really on really did bad things with with uh, geography. They had Stoughton on the waterfront. It was really bad. But in any case, um, but Anna Torv, who I hadn't seen in ages, she's you know been working. I looked at her at IMDb. She's like been doing all the stuff that I haven't seen. But it was like, oh, cool. It's Anna Torv. Uh, and so um, and it's uh, without giving anything too much away. There's a we have to get from here to there sort right. of thing. Well, like these, uh, you know, a post-apocalyptic sort of stories are often about I have to go from here to there. So how is it? Um, it's not super gory. Uh, there's violence and um, there's despair uh, and, and very sad things. Um, It's, you know, it's fairly typical in that sense of this sort of story. Uh, Pedro Pascal is really good in this. And um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm on board. I mean, it's, it's a good story. I want to see where it goes. So uh, I'm looking forward to more of it. So I think Eight episodes is the first season. So we'll see. Mm. I don't know if it there's sounds, more than one sounds season. interesting, but I'm not sure I want to watch it by myself. <laughs> I don't know. I could, I could maybe watch the first two episodes again with you, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but we'd have to get started right away because this, the third episode is coming out as we speak. Right. So we gotta get, we gotta get going on it. All right. So the other thing I watched is the new Willow series on Disney plus. So Willow was the 1988 movie. By Ron Howard. Hey, you talked about this one. No, I, I talked about the movie. Right. 
which I rewatched in anticipation of this series. So it was written by George Lucas and all that sort of stuff. So the series is out now and it's a sequel set, you know, 20 some odd years later, following up from the characters in that. Let me, uh, I get to get a drink of water. Hold on. Doing a lot of talking. So, um, it, it's one of the, the stars. So it's, um, the, the character of, uh, Willow, the, the, the little Hobbit person, the Hobbit style person, not exactly a Hobbit because that was the intellectual property of J.R.R. Tolkien, but you know, the, the Hobbit analogs, uh, is played by, now I have to look at him up because I can't remember his name. He was in all the Star Wars movies, uh, Warwick Davis. He was the Ewoks. Uh, same actor who did the Willow in the original movie. Apparently he was 17 years old when he played the original Willow. Wow. Yeah. He's young. Yeah. But yet in the story, he's like an adult who had ki- like two kids and right. like, yeah. So it was kind of interesting. Um, also in it is the actress. Um, what is her name from Star Wars as well? who played Enfys Nast. She was also in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Oh, right. What is her name? Um, but she is Erin Kellyman. Um, she's got this br- brilliant, beautiful red hair, like this, uh-huh. um, almost like an afro of red hair. She must be of mixed heritage. I think she is. And she's got all these freckles reading. and stuff. Yes. Yeah. So uh, she's in it. She's fabulous. She is. She's. Uh, I've I've enjoyed her. And I mean, she didn't have much to do in Solo as Infus Nest, but in right. the Falcon and Winter Soldiers, I really enjoyed her in that. So what do I think of this? Um, it's 21st century people in a fantasy setting. It really is. I hate, I hate to say, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I've only watched the first two episodes, I think. Um, but so far, like they don't act like people in a fantasy setting. They act like, you know, um, they talk like they're, they have the same cliches and idioms and of basically 21st century Americans. It's a little annoying. All the cliches of Royals who are chafing at their Royal duties. And, you know, the young woman who is to be married off, you know, the princess to be married off to the Prince in a uh, Royal uh, alignment of kingdoms, refuses to marry a man she doesn't love and i want to go out and be a swordsman instead and you know the whole cliche of all that which is unfortunate um hopefully it eventually rises above that i'm not sure it will but i hope i mean there's a whole thing of like the the prince and the kitchen maid and he proposes to her and they're going to get married and I'm, I will tell my mother, the queen and we'll be, we'll be together. It's like, no, that, that, that doesn't happen. That no. Princes don't marry the kitchen maids. It's just, it can't <laughs> like, so um, I'm, I'm less hopeful of that one. We'll see okay. how that goes. Disney. Was, was, is it? Well, no, Netflix did the dark crystal sequel too. Um, these like sequels of stuff that came out, 40 years ago or 30 some odd years ago, mm-hmm. the fantasy ones, the dark crystal willow. I just don't feel like the update works like, because if they can't tell the same sort of thing anymore, because it's times have changed. Storytelling has changed and it has, does it work? I don't know. So, anyway. mm-hmm. so those are two things I've watched. You said you had something you listened to that you want to talk about. 
Right. Um, so, yeah, for watching, I just I watched the last couple episodes of Three Pines, which was good. And disturbing, disturbing and <laughs> left me wanting more, but in a good way. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. Somehow, and I'm trying to backtrack and remember how my sister ended up for some reason sharing something about Bob Dylan. I thought it was Malcolm Geet who. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah. it, was, it was when I was binge watching Malcolm Geet and I found an episode. Who's his, a Bob Dylan fan. Right. He's a huge Bob Dylan fan. Um, I found an episode of his YouTube show. Do you call a YouTube show? Is it just a channel. YouTube show? YouTube, YouTube channel? channel? An episode on his channel where he was talking about Bob Dylan. And that I sent it to my sister because my sister's a huge Bob Dylan fan. Um, my sister and I actually saw him in concert with Paul Simon once. Did he sound like this? Everybody, Henny goes in Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> uh, anyway, my sister found Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize lecture, which is not the same as the Nobel Prize acceptance speech. It's something that he did sometime later, but talking about sort of his literary influences. and he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Right. And indirectly kind of a little bit of an apologia for why he, as a singer-songwriter, should be getting the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, which the, the, the Nobel Prize Committee got a lot of pushback for giving the prize to Dylan because... His work is performative. You, If you write the lyrics down on the page, they are not what makes Bob Dylan's songs great. Like, it is the performance. They are meant to be performed. But the argument is, well, Shakespeare is also meant to be performed, not read. And you would undoubtedly give the Nobel Prize to literature for... Sh- William Shakespeare. To William Shakespeare. Like, yeah. plays are meant to be performed, not read. And songs are meant to be performed, not read. But they are still... They are still literature. Yep. So Bob Dylan's Nobel Prize acceptance speech is almost a, like his sort of literary memoir spoken, uh, where he goes back and he talks about his influences, starting with his very first musical love, Buddy Holly, and going through all of his musical influences, and then talking about the literary works that I I think what he was getting at is literary works by people who had won the Nobel Prize that had formed him as a writer. So he talks extensively about three novels, Moby Dick, All Quiet on the Western Front, um, oh, not so, so much a novel, but, and The Odyssey. And he basically narrates the stories of those three novels but then bringing in the lyrics and the songs that that they inspired and the way he tells them it was like very mesmerizing because he's almost chanting them and he's telling them off the top of his head but it's a very poetic narration like you can tell that this man is just steeped in poetry and lyric and he just almost can't talk without having that like incantatory sort of presence mm. it was really mesmerizing so that was a great thing that i i found on youtube so i have a link to the nobel prize website where it has the information about the prize his prize his biography the link to the video and then the text of the lecture so uh, i'll right. put that in the show notes um, so that was that was good um i i feel like i need to like 
download a bunch of Dylan to my phone now and listen to it. And I, I my sister is a huge Dylan fan and she gave me sev- several tapes that I used to listen to in the car, like back when I had cassette tapes in the car, like 20 something years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that I've listened to much Dylan since. Um, his voice is very nasally and can be somewhat annoying, but his sense of of like lyric is really amazing. You know what Bob Dylan and I have in common? Now we both have Jewish grandparents who were immigrants from the Ukraine. Well, there you go. It's kind of cool. He's also Catholic friendly. He's been at the Vatican several times. Yeah, I mean, he had a huge conversion. Um and he became very Christian. out there Christian. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um too much. And really, his Christian stuff is good. I mean, really good. Bob Dylan. It's Bob Dylan. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I I feel like I'm at a different place where I will think I would, if I was to listen to Dylan now, I would I would be listening more for those lyrical qualities. I mean, especially have him having got the Nobel Prize. Like, it kind of says, wow, he, look at here. This is something to pay attention to. Look at what he's doing with the language. And that's really... Interesting to me. I mean, if you go back to my like literary education as an English major, we read a lot of stuff that was originally sung. Mm. You know, the old English ballads, my main Norton anthology of literature, the first like several hundred pages, the majority of that stuff was probably originally sung. Yeah. Anyway, so. Oh, we are going on tonight. <laughs> I'm just noticing the time. We're going to have a long episode tonight uh, because there's so much good stuff to talk about. There is. Yeah. But uh, Dylan, so, yeah, I think I need to give Dylan some more listening myself. I, I mean, when I listened to Johnny Cash a couple of years ago, I started listening to that. And I'm like, you know, Johnny Cash is mm-hmm. kind of awesome. So uh, I'm, I'm, maybe I'll be, I've always kind of liked some Dylan stuff, but yeah, anyway, I'm going on. So he won the 2016 Nobel in literature. the The lecture was recorded in June 2017 in Los Angeles. Right. So the, he did not accept his prize himself. Right. Um, he didn't go to Norway. He didn't go to Norway. Sweden. 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 Um, if he went to Norway, they'd be like, "Where is everybody?" <laughs> right. <laughs> Evidently, he did make a Denmark joke, though. Uh, um. Something about whether she, Hamlet. Yeah, like Hamlet, like like what should should he set Hamlet in Denmark, which I think like hit the Swedish audience in a particular way. Uh, anyway, it doesn't show up on the page. Anyway, um, so let's talk about stuff we've read. I have read another book in one week. Wow, a, a you're Brand, Brandon Sanderson book. You're on a roll. I am on a roll. These, I, these must be short, Brandon Sanderson. No, books. no, these are really long. <laughs> Trust me, I was reading this at two o'clock in the morning when I couldn't sleep because the guy in the bunk on the other side was snoring so loud. <laughs> uh, poor Lucy got up and was I had to tell her to put her headphones on. But um, so this was the second book of the Mistborn trilogy called right. The Well of Ascension. I'm not allowed to say anything about it because Melanie doesn't want me to give spoilers. But exactly. I will say I really enjoy Sanderson's. The book includes a lot of stuff on love, duty, honor self-sacrifice, the right ordering of society. Um, it's really kind of good like in, like that. It, it's not just pulp, you know, fantasy, swords and magic. It's, it, it really thinks about the human condition and really 
you know, gets into that. So um, I'm, I'm enjoying that. So aspect. genre fiction at its best. Yeah. And I would say older teens and up, there's no like outright, like gr- gross, you know, um, inappropriate stuff, but there are references to, to it and to, you know, to, to sex between people and also to like violence and, you know, some stuff like that. So uh, older teens and up, I think would be, would be okay with it, but it's a, it's good. I, I, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, I've decided to, to, to I've already come this far. I've got to finish out the trilogy. Right. And, uh, and read the hero of ages. And I've got about a week before the new um, uh, gray man novel comes out. Uh-huh. So I want to. So you got a deadline to read. To I do you. have a deadline, so I am really, I am committed. I <laughs> good read says I'm a book ahead. I haven't been a book ahead in ages, <laughs> so I want to stay ahead. Uh, so that's that's uh, what I've read this week. You, Excellent. meanwhile, have read three books. <laughs> yeah, I've been busy. Yeah, uh, and I've started a couple more too. I'm not even going to talk about all of them. Okay, well, you okay. tell me about the three you've read. Okay, so I finished Persuasion, which has been the Close Reads podcast book, book club, book club book, and uh, by Jane Austen. Jane Austen's classic novel, yeah. her best novel, in my opinion. I did it via audiobook, uh, so I listened to Alison Larkin's reading on Audible. Alison Larkin is awesome. Alison Larkin is great. I loved the, I loved listening to it, and. You know, it's a book I've read a couple of times before. So with when when that's the case and I'm rereading something, I often find that I can stall out because I'm like, this is kind of overly familiar. And so listening to an audiobook helps to make it kind of mm. fresh again. I'm thinking of doing that with the uh, Lord of the Rings and Andy Serkis's new narration. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's. When I finished and then I also finished, I picked up, I've been meaning to reread Diane Duane's Young Wizard series. Um, a few years ago, she rewrote the first few books and came out with a, I think, Millennium Edition or something that she released in digital format from her website. Like you could buy them directly from her instead of going through Amazon. And she updated a lot of the technology, but she also changed some of the storylines a little bit, like not majorly, but just tweaked them a bit. She Lucas it. Right. <laughs> Special um, edition. And I've been, and, and I bought them and I have, and all the kids have read them, but I haven't actually read the rewritten ones. And so I listened to, I mean, I read, not listened to, I read A Wizard Alone and it was good. There were a couple a couple of the changes that I it's been a while since I read it originally and I the the technology has been updated. Um so the, the computer is a laptop newer mm-hmm. version and and that sort of thing. She also made a couple of interesting changes with some of the characters. And uh it was good. I liked it and uh a fun easy read. Oh which balanced out persuasion nicely so I could listen to the audiobook and then bounce to the to the, the novel. reading book. Um, yeah. Then and now the big one. The, the big one. This this she's very proud of this by the way. Yeah. I got an advanced reading copy of Eugene reading copy. Eugene Vodolashkin's newest novel. It's not his newest novel. It's his newest novel that's been translated into English because he's a couple novels ahead. He's, in he's Russia. a Russian writer. Um 
And this novel is called A History of the Island. Although I was informed by somebody on Facebook who read it in Russian that in Russian, the title is A Redemption of the Island or The Redemption of the Island, something mm. like that. So slightly different, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so it's an epistolary novel in that it's written as a history textbook. Okay. For, but it's a history book about a fictional island. Island nation. An island nation that's somewhere mysteriously off the coast of Russia. The location is never really given. So it could be like in the uh, the Barents Sea or the or something like that. Yeah. Right. Um, not unclear. It doesn't give very many details. He sometimes refers to the mainland, and it's clear that the mainland is Russian, and it's clear that the people on the island have an essentially Russian culture. Okay. Um, so this is like sort of the standard textbook history book. The, the, there's a publisher's note at the beginning from the, um, you know, fictional publisher of the fictional history book. Okay. And it's written though, as a monastic chronicle as the early Russian histories would have been. And so there. It's got a very, like, it starts off sort of with the creation of the universe. God created the universe in seven days, but with a special emphasis on things like the creation of the islands and the dry land and the, the flood narrative. Okay. Um, and then, but what's interesting about it is then you also have a commentary that's being written, sort of, that's been interspersed with the chunks of the monastic chronicle by the prince and princess who are the rulers of the island, who are mysteriously 324 years old. Okay. So for some reason, we don't know why, they've lived an especially long time, and they are commenting on the chronicle. Like, so you're sort of going back and forth between the history text and then the, the it's commentary. like the director's commentary of the history? Right. So there's very, a lot of it, the the book is really concerned with thinking about history. It's sort of a meta fiction about history. Like what is this thing that we call history and how do we know about it? And what does it tell us about ourselves mm -hmm. and that sort of thing? And it's really interesting. I mean, so far there's been a civil war on the Island um, and people have died. <laughs> famines, lots of things falling from the sky mysteriously, which seems volcanic but they're not explained as volcanic they're just these mysterious objects falling from the sky like one time it's horseshoes and another time it's like bars of silver okay it, it's very medieval chronicle like yeah your wonders happen in dragons and that sort of thing um there's a there's a bit where um the children who become the people who live 300 and something years um become the rulers of the island in infancy. Like they're both born in the same year and they're, they're betrothed to each other when they're small children. Uh -huh. And so there's the part of the chronicle that I just finished reading is the part that deals with the guardians. Who, they're the regents who yep. are ruling the island while they're children who the, the official chronicle praises them and talks about how devout and holy and pious and wonderful they are. And they founded monasteries and schools and it's wonderful. And then the commentary adds that the monk who wrote 
that part of the history, also wrote a secret history about them where he like tears them down and says like they're like horrible, <laughs> awful, terrible, like the worst people ever, like murderers and and uh-huh. um so then you have basically the same monk wrote two different versions of the history. A they're really good, and then the one that they found shoved up the stovepipe <laughs> in his cell. Right. Um that says they were really bad. Yeah, right. I mean, which tells you this is history is not necessarily, you know, what actually happened is not necessarily what's in the book uh, that has been passed on. Right. History is written by human beings right. for purposes who are being influenced by the political situation in which they're writing. And we know that, but we don't always really bring that to our reading right even primary sources are the ex- self-expression of a particular person with a particular viewpoint at a particular point in time right who chooses what to remember and not remember and how to place it in a context right so Vodolashkin himself is a scholar he is a scholar of old slavonic texts mm. um, he's a literary scholar but he works with these old slavonic chronicles like these old medieval manuscripts and so this is kind of his fictional commentary on that and it's really interesting where you you see that but it's brought to life in a new way in a in a engaging way mm. um so it's a book though that i'm finding as much as i'm looking have been looking forward to it and as much as i'm enjoying reading it it sort of wants to be read in sips rather than gulps so i'm picking it up i'm reading a little bit and then i'm putting it down and thinking about it and going and doing something else right like, i just i usually devour new books and i'm it's not at all a slam on this one it's just that it's so rich that it really doesn't want to be gobbled so for everyone else who's not melanie like a uh, sasha tort (laughs) yeah no but for everyone who isn't melanie you can you'll be able to get uh history of the island on may 23rd that's when it comes out yeah but you can pre-order it on amazon or reserve it at your library anyway if you like historical fiction, especially historical yeah. fiction that's kind of quirky and interesting, I, yeah, I'm recommending and, it. And based on your previous, you know, oh. the previous novels of his that you've talked about, Brisbane I, I, and the other one, uh, Brisbane, The Aviator, Laris, yeah, they're all good. Yeah, he's great. Good. I'll put a link to to the Amazon page in uh, the show notes so you can take check it out there. So let's talk about quickly because we're we're a little bit over time. We're we'll talking about the mass readings for this week. So as you will know, uh, the fourth Sunday in ordinary time, we have uh, Jesus and uh, the Gospel of Matthew and the Beatitudes, the how to be attitudes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I liked what Father Matt said, which yeah. is that we can translate it as blessed, but we could also translate it as happy right happy of the poor in spirit and yes. I, I liked the point he made which is that like this is god's plan of happiness for us but if you were to write down like if you were to talk about what makes me happy you would not come up with this is not the list you would come up with <laughs> but he talked about how like the things that we think are going to make us happy disappoint us like the kid at christmas with the thing that you really really wanted and it's awesome and you play with it for a few weeks and then the new one comes out and you think that that one's going to make you happy but right like the new iphone the, uh-huh yeah uh-huh that does make me happy yeah of course it does <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, but it's a transient happy 
It is not eternal happiness. Right. The way we were designed to be happy. Right. And so we've seen, you know, the to be the poor, you know, happy are the poor in spirit or happy are the they who mourn. And, and the point he made was that these are all about relationships. It's about right. denying ourselves to focus on the other and that that forgetting ourselves and pouring ourselves into giving ourselves to the other. That's what really will truly make us happy in the long run. Right. Because what is mourning except loving someone who is gone? Right. Like mourning is I loved you so much. And now that you aren't with me anymore, I, I still love you and I miss you. But that love, we would not want to have forsaken. We would not want to forego that love because the mourning will be hard. Right. Like I wouldn't want to say, Oh, you're asking me to marry you, but you know what? Sometime you're going to die or I'm going to die. And therefore I will be sad. And therefore I am not going to marry you because I don't want to be sad at your death. Right. Like that would be stupid. That would be truly ridiculous. Yes. Well, was it, is, was it Shakespeare said it was better to have loved and lost and never have loved at all. Was that Shakespeare? I don't think that was Shakespeare. It's often attributed to Shakespeare. Anyways, it is better to have loved and lost than to never have loved at all. It's better to have lo- have experienced that love and experience the loss. You know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I mean, that's sort of the idea. So that's just one of them is that this idea that, yeah, I like that the, the relationships, that this is the all of the Beatitudes is about connections between people. Right. <clears throat> By the way, I have to mention, but the Beatitudes are at the heart of our relationship. Because the Beatitudes was the subject of the Bible study that I was leading. Was it? Yes. We were doing Matthew. Uh, Where Erasmo Levy something something wrote that book that was that study of Matthew. And we were going through the the verses of the Beatitudes like one a week. It took us months to get through Matthew. Uh To get through the Beatitudes. Right. He also said that happiness is a state of interior being that can't be touched or disturbed by external forces. It's not happiness. is not joy and it's not, but it's well, I think he's, what he's saying is, is that kind of happiness is joy, right? Like happiness is not laugh, laughing at a good joke per se. Right. It's, it's living in God's will and knowing that we will be fine. Like even in tragedy, knowing that we will ultimately Usually we make a distinction between happiness and joy. Right. And joy is the one that's that everlasting, deep-seated um, contentment in in God. Yeah. I mean, I think you can sort of pin, pin your definition on right. whichever word you want. But We're the idea playing of, with English words, right. well, expressing a, an eternal concept. Right. It's not easy. I mean, there's nothing easy about mourning the death of a parent, a child, or a spouse. But if we're truly one with God, truly living in his will, we know that we will be reunited with them. We will receive comfort. And that will bring us comfort eventually. Yes. Like not in the moment. Not right, not right now. Yeah. But but ultimately we have hope. Even Jesus mourned. Right. <laughs> he uh, wept for Lazarus. Yes, it quoted Kierkegaard saying that a saint is a person whose life is about one thing. Only one thing. Mm. And that is that relationship with Jesus Christ. So Mother Sophia at Mount St. Mary's had another reflection this oh, week. So on the good. Gospels. So good. So she's continuing to talk about they're having their chapter meetings where the order is meeting to discuss, you know, their, their future and their plans and how things are going to go. And she continues to reflect on her vocation. And she, at one point she talks about how 
Um, not long before she made her solemn profession of her vows, she took a walk in the woods and undertook an exercise where she, I, she says, I deliberately thought of each sister in the community to which I was about to commit myself until death. I reflected on each one's gifts and contributions, her unique beauty, her irreplaceable person. But in addition, I could not help seeing faults, failings, limitations, blindness, struggles. I had the faint intuition, not as strong as it has become since, that I was not to commit myself to an imaginary community peopled by cardboard cutouts of virtue, honor, heroism, and integrity, whose main purpose in life was to help me achieve my potential and feel good about myself. I was rather committing myself to a community of ordinary people, weak and strong, heroic and mediocre, fearful and courageous, virtuous and faulty. You know, I, I love that. Like the thinking about, you know, a entering into monastic life is like marrying a huge group of people. Right. Like you're marrying everyone in that community in the sense of you are committing yourself to live as a family with those people for the rest of your life. It is just as right. permanent as as family as marriage. Yeah. So I was thinking about this in relation to marriage and, and, you know, frankly, when, when someone is contemplating getting married, they should do the same thing. You know, the a married couple, engaged couple, not married couple yet, but engaged couple deliberately think of your future spouse and who you're committing yourself until death, reflect on their gifts and contributions, their unique beauty, their irreplaceable person, their faults, their failings, limitations. Right. I mean, I think we do have to spend time thinking this is a person who is not, Perfect. All, they're not perfect. They are. <laughs> they have their faults, and we need to go into that relationship with our eyes right. wide open. Do not commit yourself to an imaginary husband or wife. I, yes. To a cardboard cutout of virtue, honor, heroism, and love. Right. To an imaginary person, like you are marrying a real human being, which which comes with faults and failings and virtues, the good and the bad, and the well ugly and. I wonder if some if today's culture of weddings, the weddings, not just marriage, but weddings themselves, lends itself to this this marrying this imaginary person. Because how often are married couples pretending to be, you know, pretending to be something they're not, pretending to be something not, and you know that I'm a princess for a day or whatever that sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean this, and of course as married couples, we have to continue to recommit ourselves to the real person. Before us every day, you know, as the person they are with their virtues and failings, their integrity and their limitations. And, you know, uh, what does she say? I am committing myself to, to, she says, a community, to an ordinary person, weak and strong, heroic and mediocre, fearful and courageous, virtuous and faulty. I mean, this is uh, reading her meditations on religious life is like reading a meditation on married life, because these vocations, like you said, are mirror images of, of themselves. Right. They were about family and relationships. So, yeah. Really good. And then she gives a. Um, and of a, course, as married couples, too, I mean, yeah. as parents, we have to think that this is also true of our children, like they're their own persons they are not extensions of us they are not just a piece of us that happens to be walking around separate and they don't exist for us no they exist for their own sake just, just like you don't exist for me and my potential 
you know, and how often do, do we hear people talking about like, you know, I'm, I'm self-fulfilling because I, I, you know, I want a child to fulfill me, to fulfill me, or I refuse to have children because they don't fulfill me, you know, that's because it's all about the eternal me. So, yeah, I mean, this is a really good reflection on what it means to, you know, forget about me and I love you that the father, father uh, Matt Williams used to say with the anagram for family, forget about me because I love you. And that sort of total self donation and self giving uh, in love, which is what it's about. She also offers some paraphrases of the Beatitudes. This, I think this is the best paraphrase of the Beatitudes I've ever seen. Yeah. So she says um, the poor in spirit Accept their poverty and weakness and even their sinfulness with boundless gratitude to the one who fills their emptiness with his bounty. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It means to be empty so that God can fill you. If you're yes. full, if you're rich, then there's no room for God to give you anything. Right. You're full of yourself. Yeah. They who mourn allow the suffering and confusion and sin in the world, in those they know, and in themselves, to touch them, to pierce them. These tears heal. That one really, the, that one really got me of all of them, I think, the most. The allowing the suffering and confusion and sin in the world to touch us. Like we should, the, the proper response to seeing somebody suffer, to seeing sin, to seeing pain, should be to suffer with, like compassion. Compassion, literally. To, to suffer That's what compassion with. literally means, is compassio. Right. To suffer with. If you if you're lacking in compassion, then then their suffering doesn't touch you. It's just something that's happening out there. It doesn't affect anything inside here, mm -hmm. inside me. And that's that's heartless. It's yes. cold and unfeeling. The meek are not afraid to absorb into their hearts and even their bodies the violence directed toward them without allowing it to pass from them and victimize another. The meek that, oh my gosh. are protectors. Then you know, victimize me so that you're not victimizing another. Right. And we talk about like when you talk about people talking about like therapeutic healing and generational traumas and saying, I am going to heal myself so that I don't pass those traumas on to my children, which is something I see a lot in secular culture. But this is if it's true in secular culture, it's even more true for us. Like this. I am not going to allow this. But. This goes beyond that. This, right. this, this is, is like, accepting the pain. This is stepping in front of the, the, the violent person to protect the weak and being the, letting them direct their violence at you, which is precisely right. what Jesus did right? by going to the cross. To, to, to become the human shield for other people. Yes. Like, so it's not like just turning the other cheek is... I am standing in front of you and I'm turning the other cheek. So you hit me instead of hitting the person behind me. Right. Like Maximilian Colby saying, take me. Right. Yes, exactly. That's, that's me. That's Christian meekness. Right. Which actually looks like boldness, really. That's I mean, yeah. well, Christian meekness is strength. Right. Like, like, is there anything more bold than Maximilian Colby saying, don't kill him, kill me instead? Well, in fact, that's what makes these so powerful is. They turn on their head, you know, meekness is strength. Mourning is healing. You know, uh, poverty of spirit is fulfilling, fulfillment is bounty. 
that's that's what it's about. So the next one is they who hunger and thirst for righteousness desire more than anything to see humanity standing upright before God, not bent in upon itself in contorted self-worship. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness means not self-righteousness, but for to be to, to not in self-worship, but to stand up before God, to worship God. So, um, and then the merciful long to pour out upon all the upon all the gratuitous gift they themselves have received in their nothingness, to be the hands of Him who lifts up the lowly. So the merciful aren't dispensing their own mercy; they're dispensing God's mercy to others. Right, they're receiving and then they're passing it on what they've received. Yes, right. Um, the clean of heart have sat in long vigil over their inner thoughts choosing what is of value and what not so as to live continually the mind and heart of Christ. I, I love this idea of like choosing what's of value and, and keeping and cherishing what's valuable and discarding what's not. That, They're Marie condoing it. <laughs> right. That, that, but Marie condoing the, the inner life, the life of yes. the mind and the heart and the soul and saying what, what in me is is worth preserving and what is worthless and and not necessarily even worthless like in an eternal sense but like this is not useful anymore um i was reading so one of the other books i'm reading that i haven't really talked about but i, I will get to eventually when i finish it is Letitia adams book um and i'm trying to i'm blanking on the name suddenly our lady of the hot mess Right. Which is a great title and it's a wonderful book. But Letitia talks about um, when her son committed suicide, she um, you know, was very angry at God and angry at everything. And that anger was this protective force that had been with her since childhood because she was abused as a child. And that at one point in confession, a priest told her, your anger has served you well your anger has protected you but now it's time to let it go because you can't continue to be chained to it mm. it's a good servant but in a bad master and i thought like that was like that's really that sort of discernment like this anger had a purpose right and it was not wrong for her to be angry but it's but when it's overwhelming everything and then coloring all relationships that's when it becomes problematic so it's that pure of heart is that sifting process that purify purification it's it's also self-awareness it's that that contemplatio that's sitting in contemplation through the holy spirit letting the holy using the holy spirit as your lens to look at yourself and contemplate your inner life so that you can cleanse yourself of anything that is not of god and that does not serve you well in your journey toward god um, the peacemakers are like children of God who do not know enmity and cannot bear to see fissures emerge and widen between brothers and sisters. If necessary, they throw themselves into the breach. Wow. <laughs> heroes. This is what we're talking about in the Beatitudes is heroes. Right. This is like, what, what is Christian heroism look like? The Beatitudes. I've never seen the Beatitudes this way before, like as a recipe for heroism and wow and not just you know on the battlefield sort of heroism but everyday heroism we parents again 
You can do this. This is all stuff that we do. We do, you know, throw yourself into the breach between brothers and sisters, (laughs) literally in this sense sometimes. Right. Uh, You know, uh, so and then the last one, they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness drink from the cup that Jesus drank and find their joy in him. And the cup that Jesus drank from, of course, is the is the cup at the the cross. So, um, yeah, and joy, you know, you could be martyred with joy. And then her final her final commentary on the Beatitudes, when Jesus says blessed are. He is not saying do this and you'll be blessed or in God's eyes, this is blessed or one day these folks will be blessed. I believe Jesus is actually blessing the meek when he says blessed are the meek and that the meek upon hearing the words are actually blessed. These aren't vague aspirations, but words of power, performative words. So when Jesus says, blessed are, and we take that word into us, his blessing rests on us. It becomes like that word is living and performs. If we are being meek, if we are meek at that moment, if we are poor in spirit at that moment, if we are merciful at the moment, if we hunger at that moment, we are blessed and given graces to do that, to be that uh, in that moment. So. Yeah, that's uh, Mother Sophia. Another home run out of the park, way, way, way back over the the wall. I mean, that's right. such a great. And we we haven't even touched on like the very first thing that she said, which also blew me away. And I could have spent just as much time talking about that too, which was talking about praying by name for people as an praying. For, she's talking about praying for name. By all the all of the other Benedictine houses, and also praying for, by name for all of the sisters in, in her community. In her community, yeah. And she says, "I find it very powerful the this extension of our intercessory prayer, which in each of our hearts is ongoing and unscripted, means more when it's spoken in public. Like we're always praying for other people, but when we say that out loud in public, when we say their names in public, it means more." And in public doesn't mean necessarily mean like on the street, but just out loud. Right. In our family in, or whatever. In the liturgy of the community. Yeah. Giving voice to those names, hearing them and responding to them verbally has an effect greater than a generic prayer intention. This is because words are real. That is, when something is spoken, something is. The speaking of the word itself creates or makes real. To put it another way, speaking a name in prayer is performative. It has power beyond our individual good intentions. Mm. Like that also blows me away. Like speaking a name in prayer is performative. And I. Because Jesus is the word. He's the Logos. And I, I confess this hit me like in a good way, but like it convicted me because oftentimes when I'm praying, I'm tired and I'm like. And God, for all the people I promised to pray for, God, for all of our relatives, all of our aunts and uncles and cousins and our grandparents, and I kind of just do a category. And I don't always say their name because there's a long list of all the people I want to pray for. But she's reminding me that saying those names has power. You know, I remember my dad, before he died, he, he, he would say he had a notebook of all the people he promised to pray for. And he would go in his little scooter up to the church, to the grotto, 
of Mary in front, and he would say his prayers for each of the people in the book. Yeah. And I was I was watching a documentary video about by a Ukrainian woman talking about the war in Ukraine today. And she she showed her cousin who was carrying a gun and she herself was carrying a gun for the first time in her life. She's like, my cousin is not the kind of person who would ever carry a weapon. But here we are. But then she she showed her grandmother and she says she has armed herself in her own way. And she showed the notebook where her grandmother had written down the names of everyone she was praying for. And that was the most profound moment in this whole documentary. Mm. Here's this grandmother, and she's got her list. Not just her family, but the neighbors and everyone. All right, we're we're going on and on. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, folks. (laughs) This is a long one. Uh, So let's wrap things up there. I mean, the Beatitudes are awesome, and there's there's so much more we could say, but we will... uh, We'll 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 cut it to a close there. So uh, we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create Raising the Bets, including Christopher R., David C., Stephen B., Daniel S., and Hillary G. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Raising the Bets in all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And that's it for this time. Find links from our discussion in our show notes at sqpn.com slash bets. That's B-E-T-T-S. Send your feedback at the StarQuest Facebook page, facebook.com slash Media. Send us an email at bets at sqpn.com or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. Follow Raising the Bets in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or at the StarQuest YouTube channel, where you should also make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. Until next time, I'm Dom Bettinelli. And I'm Melanie Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Raising the Bets on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find the show wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.